sun. Okay, we're gonna start. Getting the kids, kiddos back in there. Uh, I just want to welcome you again to Providence Road. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Whoa, got a whoop over there. Um, and uh, yeah, really glad that you're here. We're continuing on in our um, Advent series. We're in week three, and we're walking through uh, four chapters of the book of Isaiah uh, to, uh, to observe Advent this year. So I'm going to um, read out of uh, chapter 53 of Isaiah. I'm just going to read the first six verses to begin with here. Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been, re- been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for um, this time of year that um, maybe more so than other times during the year calls us to remember your son. And I pray as we today look at um, this aspect of love that you have for your people, love that you have for the world, I pray um, that we would see that in the word. As we look at it from the beginning to the end of the scriptures and the, this sweeping overview of, of the love that you have for us, I pray that that would change us and that this wouldn't be uh, just an idea that you love us and love the world, but that we would believe that at a deep, deep level. And, and from believing that, you would change us. Um, you would help us and give us peace and hope and joy and freedom and cause us to love others like you've loved us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. This week I went to um, the doctor, I had a doctor's appointment. And as I was sitting there in the doctor's office, um, there was a, f- a pretty full waiting room there. And it got me thinking um, that the reason why this place exists, the doctor's office, and really uh, healthcare provider, providers, medical professionals exist, um, is because physically human beings are broken. Right? Like we're fragile, things happen to us, and everyone in that, that office with me that day had something wrong with them. At least the patients did. Um, and it was kind of a sobering reality that, okay, we're really glad to see doctors. We're glad that God has equipped people to do that kind of work. And there's people who do put lots of hours into becoming doctors. But really, doctors and medical professionals exist because of our brokenness. Because human beings' bodies are broken physically. If you think every time you go to the doctor, it's either reactive, there's something going on at the moment that you want taken care of, or it's proactive, you're afraid of something's going to happen to you, so you go get a shot ahead of time, or you get a checkup, or you get a physical, or whatever it is. And so 
the doctors and, and what they do, medical professionals, what they do, they, um, they, they, it, their value comes from being able to um, help us because we are broken. And I think we all get that at that level as it relates to our health. I mean, I think Christmas is no different. I think the reason we celebrate Christmas, everything that goes on around this time of year, Advent, Christmas, um, the gifts, the singing, all of these things, the lights in the, even in this room, it's because the world isn't right. And we need to remember that, that the world is broken. The world needs help. The whole reason why this all happens is because God said, this is messed up. And I'm sending my son to help. I'm going to provide a way out for people, provide a way for people to be reconciled to God. If God was sending a, a Christmas card, it would say, here's my son, right? We get that part, but underneath in smaller letters, it would have said, you're welcome because this, the world is messed up. You need a savior. And we should, we should feel that a little bit this time of year. We should recognize that we aren't okay, that we do need help, that this world is broken and we can't help ourselves. And this is God's loud and clear message, what we call the good news to say, here you go, you can't help yourselves. I'm providing a way out for humanity. And that is the reason why we celebrate all of this during this time of year. God loves us in this way, in a way that's really alien and foreign to our world. Like we just don't, we, we, we think of that idea of love, and even when I say that idea of love from up here, and that's kind of what we're going to talk about today, you probably start having all these um, ideas of what love is. And most of those things probably aren't wrong, right, from a human standpoint. Giving yourself up for others, and to think, put others before yourself, and um, to, to, to speak kindly to one another. All those things are good, and they're all parts of love. But our, the, our ability to love others pales in comparison to the love which God has shown to us in Christ Jesus. And today we're going to look at this, this idea of God's love throughout the Scriptures. And I think as we see and as we move to, uh, through our time today, we're going to see that the love that God has for us is so much deeper, uh, so much more faithful than the love we could have for any other human being. I mean, it's not just enough to say, and often we get caught up in this, to say, yeah, I know that God loves me because he sent his son Jesus to die for me, and I get that, and he loves me, and we quickly move on. And that's true, but it's a true statement, but it, it is, it's incomplete. It's incomplete. What, what it, do you ever think about that God loved you before the foundation of the world? Ephesians 1 tells us that. Like He knew your name he knew who you were before he put the stars in the heavens, before he set the earth on its axis to rotate. He knew your name, and he loved you, Ephesians 1 tells us. Now, that deepens this idea that God's love for us. When we say God loves us, it's not just, yeah, yeah, I get that. I've known that for a while. It's, there's so much depth to God's love for us. And a lot of our issue is that we have one word for love, the idea of love, and that's obviously love. And, and what, it changes depending on the context, depending on the relationship. We're kind of dependent upon the context for that word. But the good thing about the Hebrew and the Greek and the scriptures, there's all sorts of words that capture this idea of love. And one of the most common ones in the Old Testament um, is used almost 250 times. And it's this idea of the, the, the word for love that gets at the idea of God's faithfulness and God's loyalty, and God's a covenant-keeping God. He makes covenants with his people that he loves, and he will not and cannot break covenants. 
And this is the covenantal kind of love. The, for the most part, when you hear, see the, the, the word love as it relates to God, in the Old Testament especially, it's talking about this covenantal kind of love that God has for us. And so here's the challenge for us this, this, this time of year. I think the question that needs to be before us for sure is, do you believe it? Like, do you believe that God loves you? Um, especially those of you who are followers of Jesus. Do you believe that? Not a future version of yourself, not a cleaned up version of yourself, but God loves you. These are questions we have to wrestle with. Will you receive this love? And if you receive this love, if you, if you kind of believe that, how's that going to change you? There's a response that we all have to make when it comes to being shown this kind of love. And I think we all get that. We see on the news all the time about these, these heroic stories where people like, uh, virtually give up their lives for a stranger, put their lives at risk for a stranger. And the, the, the praise that the person who's the beneficiary of that act, they just shower praise upon them. At least they get a thank you, but it usually goes way above that showering them with praise and, and gratitude and maybe new relationships are formed because of this heroic action. Like, we get that. When something heroic is done for us, it demands a response. I think we all have a response uh, to make today to that. And as we get into this, I think there are two primary ways that we see God's love acting in the scriptures. One is through his pursuit of us, and the other is through his presence. Okay, his pursuit of us and his presence with God's people. And Christmas kicks off um, this, this idea of the gospel, really. Yes, he's loved us before the foundation of the world, but we finally see in Jesus, God made man. God came to earth as a human to enter into our broken world. He begins to show us in ways that he, he loves us. He loves his people. And God's love, but it started long ago. I mentioned in Ephesians, in Ephesians 1, we're not going to look at the verses for the sake of time, but he, he talks about that he loved us before the foundation of the world. Starts before even creation. Then you move on to Genesis 3. After sin comes into the world, he tells the serpent, yeah, serpent, you, you got him today, and one day you're going to make things, um, make a mess of things for the world, and you're going to bruise my son's heel, but he is going to crush your head. Eventually, the Savior, the Messiah, will end you will end your power by crushing your head. It says that in Genesis 3. Genesis 12, we have the calling of Abram, where he says, Abraham, just, just picks this guy out of, out of nowhere, it seems, in the Scripture, and said, I, Abraham, I choose you to be the father of my people, to be the father of the nations that are going to come after you. You're the seed of my people. And we see in Exodus, in, in, in chapter 34, we see, I mean, I think that's uh, on the screen. Um, this is a, a, really gets at the heart of this idea of, of his his, the covenant kind of love he has. He says, verse 6 especially, it says, the Lord passed before him, and this is Mount Sinai. Um, he's delivering the Ten Commandments here to Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Okay, this is the idea. When you get that idea of love in the Old Testament, this is this is the definition. This is the love. In that, in that example, this is that word for it. This idea of faithfulness and loyal love. So he brings him out, brings God's, their people out of Egypt, and he sets this, this, this occasion up on Mount Sinai, gives them the Ten Commandments, and said, I'm with you. He pursues them by giving them the Ten Commandments, and his presence is with them in this, in this moment through Moses. And then we come to Isaiah 53. 
our, our passage really for today. And so we see this at the beginning of the word, before the foundations of the world. We see this throughout the Old Testament, the kings, we have Saul and David and Solomon. Throughout all the other kings, God is with his people. He continues to pursue his people. That relationship is often rocky because of Israel's disobedience. However, God stays with them, never leaves them, never forsakes them. And then he starts to speak through prophets like Isaiah. And God speaks through Isaiah to make sure that his people remember him and know him and will walk in his ways. And in Isaiah here, we've talked about this the last two weeks as we've looked at Isaiah, but Isaiah is, is speaking to people in that time frame as if things have already happened because Isaiah is looking ahead. He's a prophet. He, he sees what's going to happen, so he's speaking in past tense, but the people receiving it are, are, are in the present, right? They're, this is the first time, um, arguably, they're hearing it, at least in this way. So let's look at verse 1, verse 1 and 2 to begin. We're going to walk through this passage. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. Similar language to Isaiah 11 that we looked at last week. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I want to stop and, 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 and focus on now how, how God, uh, Jesus came in the form of a, of a baby. Not as a king, not as a fully grown human being. He could have, but the way God worked it out, he wanted Jesus to, to come as a baby. To experience everything a human could experience. And he, was, he came in a very um, unassuming way, in humility. He's just like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. There was no fanfare in the way he came. He came to, to, to was born in Bethlehem, a, a city, a tiny city outside of Jerusalem, but he was actually from Nazareth, which was a backwoods city for that area. Like, like even in the scriptures at one point, he's saying nothing good comes from Nazareth. That was kind of people's um, ideas of Nazareth, yet that's where Joseph and Mary were from, Nazareth. He was born in Bethlehem, and we know the nativity story well. Like, this is the way he came into the world. And even the way he lived as he starts his ministry, he spent the majority of his time and really attention, it seems, at least uh, the, the uh, benevolent attention, the loving attention towards the marginalized, the outcast, the broken, the sick, those who knew they needed help. That's the kind of people he at least loved here on earth. He didn't, he wasn't grabbing for power. He didn't hang out with the, the popular people or the most powerful people to try to get in and establish some kind of platform with the, the elite of the day. No, he, he did the opposite. It's like, if you wanted power, he spent the time with the wrong people, right? But this was what verses one and two are talking about. He came in such an unassuming, humbling way. Okay, this is Jesus, this is our savior, but he was present. He pursued us in the incarnation, right? He came to earth and he was present. He was present with humanity. He became one of us to be fully present with us. So let's look at verse 3. It starts to talk about his, his death. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. It says we, like the people that God created, God created human beings to be able to worship him. To, to, to honor him, to live in community with him. So the very people that God creates turns their back on Jesus, rebel against Jesus, don't pay attention to Jesus for the most part, and end up killing Jesus. 
This is, this is what God sent Jesus into. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. God sent him to help us, to help humanity, to get humanity out of the hole we are in. He sent Jesus to die this death so we could, he could make a way that we would be forgiven for our sin. He laid the sin, our sin, upon him. This is why he suffered. This is why he died. To rescue us, to save us, and to honor God, his Father. Verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he not opened his mouth. He could have. He was right. He, was, he had every right to be king. In the, in the moment, he could have opened his mouth and said everything right. But he chose in that moment to remain humble. In that, in that time in history, he knew this was the way he was going to go. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened his, not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And his, for his generation, who was who's considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken by, for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. There it is, to save us, to bring us to him. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide the portion with him, the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He has died for us. And, and, what, and, and, I, and I read that passage, just as often a passage is read on Good Friday, right, to, to, to mark that. But I think we, we need to remember that during the Christmas season as well, because what other picture of love do, do we have that, that's any stronger than this? Like this is someone who loves someone so deep. People who didn't love him back, people who actually were killing him. Jesus loved them. And God loved us by sending Jesus, he, by, by sacrificing his only son. He sent him to us. And we see in Isaiah 54, the very next chapter, one little verse here I want to read that's, that's, that's very comforting. And he says to his people here, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. Now, you think of that imagery, like that's, that's crazy, right? For mountains to just be, to depart and hills to be just ripped off the earth. But what he's trying to get, the point he's trying to make, you're, even if your world is falling apart, even though you think there is nothing that can help me survive this, there's nothing that can get me out of this hole. I'm miserable, I'm afraid, I'm fearful. My life is crumbling down all around me. He says, my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed. Again, back to that definition of love. It's not not our definition of love. The scripture's definition of God's love for us is a covenantal kind of love. Love that once he makes that covenant, he is all in. He can't break that covenant or he ceases to be God. He ceases to be perfect if he goes back on his word. So he has to keep his word, and he will keep it. So when your life is falling apart, when you're in the pit of despair, he loves you. He cares for you. 
How do you know? You may not feel that. That may not come naturally in those moments, but you go to verses like this and know, because of Jesus. Because I believe that Jesus is who he says he was, and he died this death and rose from the dead. I know it, so I can believe in it, even though I don't feel like it in this moment. This is part of that idea of having faith. And um, Romans 5 is another great passage to, to get at this idea. And that we've kind of talked about who God is and sending Jesus in, in, this, in this place. I want to look at who we were, right? So this is Paul talking to Christians in Rome. He says, for while we were still weak, and that's, let's just not go too fast through this. Why we're still weak, not strong, not, ah, you're kind of broken. Oh, you're kind of like, weak. We were weak. We were, we were not strong. We were weak people. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Okay, not partially godly, not just a little bit broken. Ungodly is a strong word. This is all of us, all human beings. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. It goes into some logic here. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one will dare even to die. We think about that, and that, that makes sense. Right? Like, like we, we like to think we would lay down our lives for people who, who are in need, but usually we think through our family or our friends or people who deserve it. And this is what Paul's saying here. For people who deserve it, maybe you'll lay down your life for them. But, eight here, but God shows his love for us. This is how he's different. This is a big this is a big verse, maybe one of the most important verses in the Bible, because we hear that we get these verses, God is love. God so loved the world. Okay, but this verse gets at the heartbeat of why his love is so alien and different from our love. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Like while we were still sinners, while we were still messed up, while we were still rebelling against him, while we were still turning our backs on him, while we were still going our own way and saying, God, I don't need you, I'm okay. He didn't say, hey, clean yourself up and come to me. Hey, start doing some right things first. Make some good decisions. Um, uh, figure out how to put your life together and then come to me. No, he says he loved us at our worst. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is, this is the love he has for us. We didn't do anything to deserve this. And we didn't do anything to move towards him. He is doing all the pursuing here. You'll notice that. All the pursuing. God pursues, pursues, pursues. Jesus pursues, pursues, pursues us. And when we believe in him, he comes inside of us through the form of the Holy Spirit. And we have his presence with us all the time. One author talking about this kind of love and helping us to understand it a little bit more. Um, we can often get caught up when we think of God loving us in the gospel. That, that like God creates this. It's not very personal when we really start getting down with it. This is the way we think at least. Um, that God creates this system of salvation. Jesus dies, so the system's created. And then he kind of takes his hands off. It says, it's your role now to get in the system. I've created the system. I've created the way. Now, it's up to you to get in there and, 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 and make a good decision or clean your life up or whatever it is. And oftentimes, I think that's what we um, maybe think of how this thing sets up. But God doesn't just create the system. You could say he creates the system, but he actually saves people personally, himself, with faces and names and stories and, and, and families. He, he saves individual people, not just a system and individual people get to come in through their own volition and will. He saves individual people. And that, should, that, that it just increases the love that you should feel as an individual. He knows you by name. 
He knows all of your issues, knows all of your problems, knows all of your upbringing and your baggage that comes from your family, and he loves you. Didn't create the system that you have to get into. He actually loved you and saved you. Another couple examples of this, illustrations. Uh, he's not just the maker of the life vest that gets to get put on the boats, and if you need it, you grab it. He actually reaches out and grabs you and pulls you out of the water. Like he's, the, he's actually the lifeguard that pulls you out of the water and doesn't just create a bunch of life vests that you have to figure out how to use. He's also not the maker of a bunch of really good scalpels, right? He's going to make a bunch of scalpels that doctors will use that will eventually save your life. No, he actually is the one who's doing the operation. He takes the scalpel, does the operation himself, and saves you, individual people who have faith in him. And this is a big deal. When you talk about the experiential nature of God, some of us just think God loves you, but you... We, we just, that disconnects for us. Cause can he love me? Like Jeremy, with all my baggage and all my sin, my story. Like I, when, when, when my wife tells me she loves me or when Jax tells me he loves me, I can get on board with that quicker than, God, than even God sometimes. Because I'm like, yeah, you're here. You're in front of me. You show that to me. I see that every day. Yeah, you love me. I get that. But sometimes with God, it's like, yeah, you created the system and, and, and I somehow fit into it now that you love me and you save me for my sins. But this is personal. He loves you when you believe, okay? He loves us. And we just, we just have to know that's the nature of God's love. Um, another way to kind of describe this love, I found this week from a, a author and pastor by the name of John Piper. And these, these uh, things are up here. These are um, ways that um, if we just think about and dwell on these things, um, I think it helps us understand God's love better. I'm going to go through these really quick. Number one, way you know that God, or this, or to the degree that, the, that God's love is strong. Number one, the degree to which the person does not deserve to be loved. So in some way, when, when someone is very unlovable, if someone loves them, their degree of love is really, really strong. When someone is very lovable, it's easy to love them. The, the energy and the effort it takes to love that person is not as great. And that's what he's saying here. And we know from Romans 5, we just looked at, we fit verse 1, right? Uh, we fit number 1. And number 2, the greatness of the price paid to love a person. We just saw that in Isaiah 53. Like the price that you'll pay to, to love that other person helps the degree of that love go up. Um, number three, uh, the greatness of the good that is done for the person when he, is, he or she is loved. Okay? Like the, the, what good do we receive? We could go on for days. We're adopted into God's family. We're reconciled to him. We get to spend eternity with him. We're given the Holy Spirit that is the counselor and the helper to help us live life. We're given an inheritance, the scripture says, as, as, as sons and daughters of the king. We have a family we're adopted into. It's called the church, and we have brothers and sisters that take care of us. We can go on and on and on about the benefits. And number four, the love of desire that God has for the good of the one loved. And what, what can measure this more than him sending his son? Like, like, does he need to do anything else to show us that he loves us and he loves his people than sending Jesus? And that's number four. And I want to connect this back to Advent, right? In Advent, we talked about it the last two weeks. We find in the season we remember Jesus' birth and his life and his death. We also remember, we also wait for his second coming, his return. Advent means arrival or coming. He's already come once. He will come again. We talked a lot about that the last two weeks. He will come again. And he's still loving us. He's still pursuing us. He hasn't finished that. We have the Holy Spirit. He dwells with us. He, we have his presence, those of us who have faith in him. 
but he's going to come back for us in a big way. Let's look at Revelation 19. So we're working our way through the scriptures here. Talked about his life, his death, his resurrection, and now the second coming. Revelation 19. This is called, uh, theologians call this the marriage supper of the Lamb or the wedding supper of the Lamb. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters. This is the pro- John here who's, 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 who's seeing this um, happen. He's describing this, like a roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. Sounds like a worship service. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And so because of what Jesus has done for us, and we're, we're in him, we're, we're, we're sons and daughters, we belong to him, that this is our reality. This is what's awaiting us. This is what's coming for us. One of the most common metaphors in the scripture for the church is the bride of Christ. And one day, this is what that's describing. Jesus is going to come back and take his bride. He's going to pursue us and finish that. He's going to take his bride, the church. And we're a part of that, those of us who have faith and believe. He will pursue us to the end. And we will get to see him face to face. Not, not through the Spirit, which is awesome. We have that now. But we'll one day get to see him face to face. Jesus is our husband. And we are his bride. And that imagery right there, that we could do so many sermons on that. But if that doesn't, especially those of you who are married, I think can understand this. But the, 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 the love that Jesus has for us, the scriptures intentionally put it in the terms of a wedding, of a marriage. And what, what happens at a wedding, what happens in a marriage, and the joy of, of, of that event. This is, this is relational. God loves us. So what do we do as we leave this? I'm even hesitant to, to, to give some, some practical things we can do because I think a lot, of, a lot of us just need to rest in the, lo- the love that God has for us. When I said God, God loves you, he loves you. Do you, I don't think we believe that to the degree we should. So I'm a little nervous even giving some, some, some practical things to work out here, but I'm gonna go ahead and do it um, because I think we are saved for a purpose, right? We are saved, we are redeemed, we are loved for a purpose. Um, and I think those two things, pursuing and being present, are the two things that we need to think about. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Paul gets this idea really, uh, gives it to us really clear here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We have that. The Christians, the church, we have the ministry of reconciliation. That's been given to us. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the word to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, which is the gospel. This is what we talked about today. God coming to earth to save humanity. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's a big identity statement for the We're ambassadors now. What does that look like? God makes his appeal through us. We implore you, Paul says, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Know him. uh, Accept his love. Believe in his love. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He was perfect, 
but he put the sin upon him so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. We might receive this righteousness that we didn't earn. It's not ours. It's the righteousness of Christ so that we can be reconciled to God and we can have relationship with God. So this is our role. We are ambassadors. We are ministers of reconciliation. So what does that look like? Well, I would say um, starts at home or even in your, with your roommates if you're, if you're not married. Um, roommates are at home. Right? Like, are you pursuing the people closest to you and are you present with them? Do you pursue them and are you present with them? Okay, just think about those two words. Do you go after them? Do you love them as best as we can with Christ as our model in this way? We pursue people. Are we present with people that we love, the people that are close to us in our family? Um, I would say uh, moms, dads, like, are you, are you present with one another? Do you pursue one another? Are you present with your kids? There's so much today that gets in the way of being present. Technology and entertainment and just busyness and, and ruminating on something that happened at work that physically you're there, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually, you're not there. And how can we love people well without being present? Like, think about that. Like, is it, is it even possible to say, I love you and really mean it if you're not present with them? I think you can't. So are we pursuing the people closest to us? And are we present with the people closest to us? I think these are ways that we actually love people like Christ loved us. It starts at home, then I think it moves to close friends and family outside of our immediate family. This is where the church comes in, brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we pursuing each other in encouragement and love? Are we present with one another? Do we show up at worship on Sunday mornings? And are we, are we connected to a body of, of believers during the week? So it's all of life. It's not just one time a week. Are we pursuing one another? Are we present with one another? And then it extends beyond these walls to those who don't know Jesus, to the broken, the marginalized, the hurting in our city. Are we thinking of ways? How can we pursue them? Again, if we're ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors for Christ, that should all, we should always be thinking about how do I pursue people who maybe aren't being pursued? who aren't being loved. How do we do that? How, how, do we be, how do we remain present with them? That's hard physically, right? To, like people that you're just not used to hanging around and people that aren't in your little sphere of life, maybe in your family or the church. Like, how do you create time to be present with people who don't know Jesus, maybe who don't know the love that the Father has for them? So let's think of ways we can take the love that God has shown us and see it work through us to a hurting world. Um, in closing, I just want to, to make sure we get this, that, that God has loved us before anything in this world was created. Anything. And he sent Jesus into this world um, to, to, to bring us back from sin and death. And for thousands of years, God's people were told about this Messiah. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. So for us, we are on this side of it. We get to remember what it was like when the, the Messiah came, when Jesus came. There's also a part of us that has to expectantly wait and hope when Jesus returns and that wedding supper of the lamb happens and it will happen. That's a real event that will happen. And so there's this tension here we're living in. I want us to feel the tension, but we're in the middle of something and we're in the middle of God reconciling people back to himself. And so I want to close by, by reading these lyrics to this song. Um, I really love the lyrics. Um, it's a really short song and it's, 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 it's to, to be sung this time of year. And it's talking about uh, when Jesus, when God sent Jesus, this was a, 
in his mind, it's a declaration of war on Satan and sin and death. He's like, okay, he's coming. The time is right. The Savior has been born. Kind of, it's on. Okay, so this is what he's saying. This is war like you ain't seen. This winter's long. It's cold and mean. With hangdog hearts, we stood condemned. But the tide turns now at Bethlehem. This is war. And born tonight, the word is flesh, the Lord of light. The Son of God, the low-born King, who demons fear, of whom angels sing. This is war on sin and death. The dark will take its final breath. It shakes the earth, confounds all plans, the mystery of God as man. And that's written by Dustin Kinsrew. Um, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that you're a God who... Um, doesn't wait for us to get our act together to provide a way to be reconciled to you. That you didn't remain in heaven and say, how are you going to live in such a way that gets you reconciled to me? Or what, here are the seven steps, or here are the five steps, or here are the three things you have to do to be a Christian. And that's not what you did. You initiated, you pursued, you made your presence known to us. You sent your son. You came down to us. And we see it in Isaiah 53 that what an act of love. Jesus leaving heaven. He had had always known from the beginning of, of creation. And come to earth and suffer and and experience everything that we humans experience to conquer death and then one day we know he'll return to set up new heavens and new earth and we will be um, his bride and we'll see him face to face and I pray these ideas from the scripture will will cause us to feel your love We, we need help with that for so many of us just we know it but do we experience it and do we feel it moment by moment and I pray through your spirit you'd help us You'd help us know that. You'd help us experience the love that you have for your children. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.